The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, you're listening to the Partially Examined Life, a preview to our follow-up discussion on episode 205. Wes Alwyn and I talked for an hour and ten minutes. We're going to play you some highlights here, both to make you want to go listen to the whole thing and hopefully to provide enough discussion here that it's intrinsically interesting. We spent a lot of the time this discussion getting into more details from Emile Durkheim's book, Suicide. I guess there's just, first of all, the issue of a sociological versus a psychological approach. For one, he said you can't actually know individual circumstances why somebody killed themselves, or at least, you know, it's not the norm to know that. What the government officials write down as the cause of death or the reason for the cause of death is not going to be very accurate. So he wanted to talk about the sociological fact. It's not just that we just can't know, but we can't know by taking the individual cases and generalizing them to the sociological cases, which is kind of what I would assume to be the case. He thought there were these free-floating, autonomous sociological facts that you could analyze. We can get into a couple of quotes about that. Do you have any thoughts in that area? This is on 44 of the Roman numerals. So it appears that this total is not simply a sum of independent limits, a collective total, but is itself a new fact sui generis, with its own unity, individuality, and consequently its own nature. A nature, furthermore, dominantly social. And this is following in the very introduction to this section 2 on 44. But is the fact thus defined of interest to the sociologist? Since suicide is an individual action affecting the individual only, it must seemingly depend exclusively on individual factors, thus belonging to psychology alone. Is not the suicide's resolve usually explained by this temperament, character, antecedents, and private history? And then what I read previously was the response. Those are the two exact quotes that I had pulled out as well, so we're on the same page, yep. Okay, I think this is something of a false dichotomy. I mean, the explanations ultimately he's going to give involve the way in which social facts affect individuals. So, for instance, a lack of group identification at a cultural level, this is what he calls the egotistical suicide, the egotistical explanation, will lead to a sense of life seeming meaningless or not worth the trouble. We can get more into the details of that later. Or the enemy explanation where there's a deregulation of individual desire because there aren't the same social constraints on desire, including by way of hierarchy and knowing our own role within a society and the ways in which we take on the social conscience into ourself. Those are really social and psychological explanations at the same time. I always talk about the psychosocial, psychosocial explanations, which I think, by the way, are not that popular these days, but people tend, especially in academia, to talk about cultural explanations, cultural in the sense of almost something that's arbitrary that can be changed, you know, like toxic masculinity or something, as if toxic masculinity or masculinity in general didn't have a fundamental psychosocial explanation that went back to biology. 
I just wanted to say that to distinguish it from cultural explanations. But I think it's very hard to separate out the social and the psychological like that. We also explored in more detail Durkheim's main causal claim about the lack of integration of society, which is correlated with lack of religion, being a factor behind increased rates of suicide. So he's noticed these three propositions, as he calls them. Suicide varies inversely with A, the degree of integration of religious society, B, the degree of integration of domestic society, and then finally of political society. Then he says that's not due to something special about each of them. It's not like there's a different explanation in each case as to why suicide varies with them. But it's just the fact that they're all strongly integrated social groups. So he reaches the general conclusion, suicide varies inversely with the degree of integration of the social groups of which the individual forms a part. And then he's going to tell us why, and he's going to give us a very psychological explanation of why. When we brought this up the first time, I think I might have compared this to Dostoevsky, or at least I had this in mind, that Dostoevsky had a very, in our idiot reading, this view that once you have a breakdown in religion, then everything goes to hell. (laughs) That individually, psychologically, people do not have their conscience set up and anything ends up being permitted. Again, maybe not in every single case, but it's a common enough thing. It's sort of, he's similarly pointing out a sociological fact about it. And I think he really thought that it was causal in terms of Durkheim is saying, as long as the social cohesion is there, and the social cohesion could be religious, it could be secular. You just need social cohesion of some sort. Exactly. But I think Dostoevsky was saying specifically, you know, at least in his culture, religion provided the social cohesion. Right. And when the religion breaks down, then that is a cause. It's not merely correlated with, but a cause of the breakdown in social cohesion. And so it's really not the social cohesion that's at the root of things. If all these things are correlated, and I'm not actually sure that they are, but assuming that these guys are right, it's still very difficult to tell what causes what. It might just be that there's not enough integration in domestic or political society really to do the work. It's still integration. It's still social integration. It's just that there is actually a special quality to religion that makes that a powerful form of integration in the way that the others don't, right? So one of the ways in which it's socially integrating is just that it gives people common ideals. It gives them something in common to aspire to and to regulate their way of looking at the world and their norms and their morals. And that is sort of amplifying to the individual. That gives the individual something larger than themselves. It lets them participate in a desire that is larger than themselves. The way he puts it on the next page is, this is why he's calling it egotistical suicide. So we call the state egoism in which the individual ego asserts itself to excess in the face of the social ego and at its expense. We may call egoistic the special type of suicide springing from excessive individualism. My theory, of course, I'd like to relate this always, as always, back to the Hegelian theory of recognition, which is now like my big thing, even more than Kant, which is to say we feel psychically constituted by way of this integrated superego that we have because it integrates, as I've said before, it's a fantasy of how others or how the big other, how society or other human beings see us. And that being seen is the important thing. So for instance, if I'm pursuing being a writer on a desert island, 
but there's no possibility that anyone is ever going to read it, that becomes less of a meaning-making activity for me, less of a reason to live, I think, than if there are other human beings who at least might read it, might become aware of it, and so give me the sense of power of having affected others and, and therefore amplify my own sense of self, which is not to say I couldn't do it on the desert island if I had a strong enough fantasy with me of others, or if I held out the hope that I might one day be off the desert island, or I might put the manuscript in a bottle or something. But it's always that relation to the potential recognition of the other or the recognition insofar as I've internalized it, this common value. So if that common kind of value breaks down, if it's no longer there socially, if no one values writing or no one is around to value it, it becomes less of a source of that amplifying recognition and therefore it provides us with less meaning in life, provides us with less of a reason to stick things out when life is full of all this suffering and bullshit, basically. It's interesting for me at this point to think about the degree to which the recognition has to be in person. Yeah. Right. This came up on the discussion of Drew expressed the sentiment you often hear about how the internet is increasingly isolating us. But the way that you started describing this was very much an intellectual sense of belonging, having norms to aspire to, having something greater than yourself to integrate in, especially when you're talking about how even on the island, as long as you had a fantasy, as long as you're, there's a virtual society that you're dealing with. So being connected via the internet and having people basically nagging you all day long if you're on Facebook, say... It's a good way to put it. That's really being connected. So when discussing Durkheim, Wes ended up giving his interpretation of Durkheim's view, which went well beyond what Durkheim said, interpreting social integration in terms of social recognition and the will to power, which led to the following transition to talking more generally about different methods of explanation. And he doesn't even say recognition, per se, as far as I remember explicitly. Yeah, these are all my musings <laughs> on, on top of this. My very predictable obsessions, in fact, yeah. And that's fine, but this kind of gets to one of the things, you know, like with our Chris Dave episode, we got some pushback in terms of the kind of thing that I was a little more vocal about when we first did Freud or first did Lacan. But by the time we got to Chris Dave, I was just like, you know, I'm just having fun with this. I just want to understand what's being said. I'm not so much evaluating whether this is accurate or not. It's a matter of what the epistemic status of some of these explanations are that, you know, what Durkheim is trying to do in terms of being scientific, he's at least starting with data. And you could say it's unclear whether his interpretations of that data, these more philosophical points that we've been outlining, like if those are really part of the science or not, like I would almost think not that actually he is a philosopher despite himself. And just the same way Freud was trying to be scientific, but yet, he was very speculative and very philosophical in lots of ways. And it's maybe the descendants of both of these folks that purposefully might eschew philosophy and are serious about eschewing philosophy, avoiding philosophy, are much poorer. The actual scientific papers that we read on suicide were just sheerly about the correlations and the predictions and what can we do to address this as a public health epidemic? And there was just almost no philosophy in them whatsoever. Like they were very, very dry. It was interesting to read about different statistical methods, but 
beyond that, like it does not enlighten anything. It enlightens certain methodological issues of, well, if you're just doing studies looking for particular correlations, you kind of come out out of the blue and say, oh, I bet it's related to social breakdown. And then you try to, you know, make these matches up that that's definitely not going to be sophisticated enough to capture the multiplicity of causes that are evidently going into this behavior, which is why it's so difficult to predict. And so the epistemic difficulties are driving how they ultimately are going to research that. So that's philosophically interesting. Yeah. I I mean, I'd love to write some psychoanalytic apologetics one day, because obviously it's not something I haven't thought about. And I take all that stuff seriously, those sorts of objections. But I will say I don't think the problem is a lack of data because psychoanalysts spend hours and hours and hours observing individual people, whereas a research psychologist does not engage in those same individual-level observations. They're often just giving people a questionnaire. And if you've ever experienced those questionnaires or talked to someone, talk to people who are receiving mental health treatment, they think they're idiotic, like rate your happiness on a scale of 1 to 10 or something like that. And I'm highly skeptical of them, although I fully admit that I could be wrong. There might be some utility there. So the problem with psychoanalytic data, though, is it's not public data. And it's inherently relational data, going back to this whole idea of you know our Kantian view of the world, where our senses, our, our relation to the thing, you know, the cognitive faculty is ultimately a part of what we are experiencing. This is sort of a souped-up version of that, where... If you're a psychoanalyst in the room with a particular person listening to them pre-associate, you might be, because of your own particular fantasies and associations, hearing something that is radically different from another psychoanalyst. That's one thing. And so there's the relational part of it. And then there's the part of it which involves just the fact that you don't have a bunch of people in the same room observing the same data I mean, conceivably, you could do a recording, and I'm sure these types of studies have been done and have other people listen to it. And then there's just the fact that beyond the data problem, it is highly speculative of necessity. Freud, in the beginning, thought he was just going to be working exclusively with the brain. But that gives you, in a way, an unsatisfying level of explanation. Like if you ask someone why they're going to the fridge to get a sandwich and they talk about their brain, that's not the level of explanation we're looking for. We're looking for the subjective, I'm hungry explanation. Psychoanalytic explanations lie on the border between purely physicalistic explanations and these subjective explanations in terms of motivation. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about unconscious motivation. So it is highly speculative, but I think that doesn't mean it's not worthwhile. It's certainly not scientific in the sense of the way hard sciences are scientific, but I don't think research psychology in general can be that way just because of the nature of its subject, which is the the human subject. So we did from here get more into questions that I still had for Wes about our recent Kristeva reading, but as raised by Dr. Drew on the episode, there's another kind of explanation beyond the psychotherapeutic that we had not yet considered. Here's our final clip. Maybe as a last topic to just throw out here, also was raised by one of our listeners in response to that episode, I think relevant here, is evolutionary psychology explanations. And this is perhaps a, you know, something that we owe another episode specifically reading about, that these are also, you know, as came up in our Robert Wright on Buddhism episode, they're models. They're, somebody was saying, why this Kristeva 
convoluted psychological explanation of disgust when you could just give an evolutionary biological explanation. And we raised that a little during the discussion in that there are certain things that if they're going to cause disease, we can see why our ancestors would have developed disgust for those. But there are many things that don't cause disease that we're still disgusted by. So there must be more to the story than that. Well, also, why don't we see disgust in animals? Why aren't they evolutionary programmed to engage in disgust? Dis- disgust has to involve, has to have something to do with self-consciousness and um, a particular human sort of individuation. Unless someone can show me that other mammals, that there's any other mammal that can experience disgust and isn't going to go straight to a pile of shit to sniff it, as opposed to wrinkling one's nose. and <laughs> It could just be different in which objects they're disgusted by. I mean, in- interestingly, I had brought that up during the discussion, and you took me to be saying what you went on to say, which is animals are never disgusted, whereas I was thinking very clearly of many items of potential food that I've offered to my dogs or cats over the years, and they're just like, not just, no, I'm not interested, but like, how could you, you know, just this, you know, what appears to be a violent wrenching, I am so disgusted at you. (laughs) I've never had that experience, but I've seen dogs eat vomit off the floor, and I've seen them be indifferent to treats. But that's a discussion for another time. But, But I think the larger thing about evolutionary psychology, right? These are, and you pointed this out. I briefly glanced at the Facebook thing, but I just don't feel like I have the time or energy to dispute these things. There are different levels of explanation and different explanations of a different level of proximity. So I brought up the hunger example, for instance. We can explain someone going to the fridge in terms of the ways in which brain states are controlling limbs. We can talk about it in terms of the subjective feeling of hunger. We can talk about it in terms of the evolutionary origin of hunger. But if someone asked you why you're going to the fridge and you said, well, you see a long, long time ago, billions of years ago, (laughs) or whenever it was uh, the first animals that could experience or, or that we could legitimately call hungry evolved. And then that happened because, you know, well, they need to take a name, blah, blah, blah. And then there's one, one other thing I have to say about this, which is speaking of speculative These explanations are often highly speculative and speculative, I think, in an unhelpful way. And I think one of the reasons they're unhelpful is because there are many, many alternative models that are difficult to choose from. And then there's the question of whether every trait that you see in an animal is evolutionarily selected for. I don't think it is the case that every trait is evolutionarily selected for. This is something I'm taking from a... This guy Lewontin, I think, because I think there are some traits which are just hangers on to other selected for traits or some traits which are just structurally necessary to the existence of other selected for traits. And so they're there, but it's not that they're specifically selected for. So for instance, there's like, oh, there's been some controversy around a evolutionary psychology explanation of rape where it's i forget even what the explanation is is it in terms of you know maximizing the spreading of one seed or something I, I don't even know but whatever it is it's entirely possible that that particular phenomenon at that particular level of granularity is not actually selective for what's selected for is the having of a mind and a certain factors and sexual desire and so on and so forth. And one of the byproducts is the phenomenon of rape. To claim that rape in particular is selected for 
is an enormous and I think unscientific assumption. So those are my thoughts on evolutionary psychology. All right, so that's all you get right now. It was a very rich discussion, pretty much as good as a regular episode. You can only get it by becoming a Partially Examined Life citizen or $5 a month Patreon member. You can learn about those options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. Thanks.